With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Good evening, folks, or good morning if you're watching us in uh, an African time zone, as our guest is tonight. I'm Jack Murphy, here with co-host Dave Park. Our guest today is Eben Barlow. Eben is the founder and CEO of Executive Outcomes, uh, and he was also the chairman of a company called Step. He is written about proselytized about um, in many different ways in the press, much of it not so uh, positive. Um, but he has all done, us, uh, I think, a big service in writing a couple books here. This is his first one, uh, Executive Outcomes Against All Odds, which it talks about his life um, as, a, uh, as a soldier in the South African Defense Forces and then in a covert action branch called Civil Cooperations Bureau. This is uh, this is a must-read, in my opinion. Uh, he has also authored Composite Warfare. This is a book on strategy and doctrine for the practitioners out there. And tonight, we're going to be talking mostly about his new book, The War for Africa. And this covers his time primarily with the, the company Step, um, which is what we're going to get into tonight and some of the work that he did, um, particularly in Uganda and, uh, and also Nigeria. So, Eben, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much, Jack, for having me on your show again. It's always a pleasure. And, uh, you know, there's so much to talk about. I'm going to try to focus on just a few topics. Um, and I know it's very late where you are. Uh, it's what, like... No, it's, it's early. Very early. <laughs> it's like 3 a.m. Um, so, Eben, I, I think right off the bat, um, could you just take a few minutes to tell us kind of who you are and how you got your, your uh, I mean, why this world of private military companies or as a mercenary, as some people would use the pejorative term, um, how did you find yourself into this life and this line of work? In a way, by accident, um, I was born in Zambia, which was then known as Northern Rhodesia. Um, my dad and my mom eventually moved south. Um, for many reasons, primarily work reasons. And I ended up in South Africa, went into the South African Army. Um, I'm a very proud sapper. And um, I ended up at a unit called 3-2 Battalion and was the second in command of their reconnaissance wing. Later in the CCB, as you've mentioned, which was a, a covert group of, of the South African Special Forces. 
and um, then suddenly found myself without work. Um, you know, but every door that closes, a new one opens, and um, I was asked if we could help an oil company protect and recover assets in a little town in northwestern Angola and Soya, which we did. Um, that led to a contract to train the Angolan army, ironically an enemy we'd fought several years prior to that, um, which we did, and I like to think the unit we trained for them was instrumental in ending that war, until it got to a point that foreign interests intervened again, and, and the rebels were allowed to rearm in full knowledge of everyone, and then they went back to war, but by then we'd left already. So, but that just in brief is how I ended up doing what um, I doing doing what. Sorry, I'm just my coffee. I just wanted to put closer to me. Um, thanks very much. Um, and that's basically the story, Jack. Um, that was EO was started initially the company executive outcomes to train South African special forces, um, and that was what was what I was doing until such time as the Angolan contract came along. Which, of course... It's, it's interesting that, that many people have claimed they were the founders, they were this, they were the directors, they were lying. Um, and I've always said it's a simple matter to check at companies out who established the company. And, and, of course, that led on to follow-on work fighting the RUF in Sierra Leone, um, there's a hostage rescue effort that um, your employees participated in in Indonesia. And again, I mean, this is like uh, a 600 page book here. We can't unfortunately get into all of it tonight. I mean, but this is an incredible, incredible memoir. Um, also talks about his time in Civil Cooperations Bureau. A lot of terrific stuff there um, to take a look at that's going to interest readers. Um, but you, you, sh you closed down executive outcomes at a certain point, and your second book here, it starts off with your attempt at retirement. And I just had to note that you were not so good at retirement. This turned out to be something that <laughs> your, your skills just did not lend itself to. You tried to retire, you, you have a very uh, a strong interest in horses. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us about your, your initial attempt to retire and how that went for you. Okay, well, first of all, um I left executive outcomes because I'd actually become totally burnt out. Um, you know, I was fighting a war on several fronts. There was not only the wars in the countries we were engaged in, but there was a huge war going on with the domestic media, um, domestic and foreign intelligence services, and that type of thing just eventually became a little bit much because I was hardly sleeping. Um, and I was always having to defend um, what we were doing for governments. And it was just almost unbelievable to me that the South Africans who were actually supporting rebel movements, they were never discussed. It was almost as though it was fine to support them. And that goes from, you know, the pre-1994 government to the post-1994 government. So there was this whole thing, and it just got a bit much for me in the end. Um, you know, what went wrong in the company later after I left, um, I cannot discuss, but the company did close its doors in 1998. But having said that, all the, you know, the media stories that it was because of South African legislation, that's all lies. It's, you know, and again, all people have to do is go to 
with the relevant State Department in South Africa, and they'll see that we had a, a licensed doctor. Um, but you know, it's much better to sort of intimate that we were operating illegally than what it is to actually write the damn truth, which a lot of these journalists have a problem doing. And so how did it go after you, you tried to step away from this line of work and, and enjoy your life? It, it wasn't very successful. Um, I tried and, you know, before long, certain embassies came knocking on the door and said they'd like me to act as an advisor to them, um, which I started doing. And I became an advisor, a trusted advisor to the Angolan government um, in the 2000s. And, and to several other embassies that I didn't write about because of the fact that I still have contact with these people. Um, and then in 2009, I was approached by three guys who'd spent time in Chikurubi prison and who, in Zimbabwe, who had been part of the so-called coup attempt in Equatorial Guinea. Um, while they were in prison, they decided to create a company which the acronym STEP um, is Special Tasks, Training Equipment and Protection. And in 2009, they asked me if I would be their chairman, which I said, okay, I'll do that. Because, I, you know, I just couldn't sit on my bum doing nothing. And I would just point out that these, these three gentlemen who were cooling their heels in a, a prison in Zimbabwe at the time, um, one of whom was uh, named in your book uh, as well, uh, Mr. Loki Horn, who uh, people who watched the previous episode of ours that we did with uh, Shane Willard, who was with the South African Special Task Force, he mentions Loki several times during the interview and in his book. So that's just a, a familiar uh, person that people might recognize. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting because I was at Shane's book launch. Um, and my late brother was Task Force member number two. Um, really? So, you know, I had a, a sort of a a loose link with the task force guys, and I still know many of them. So that was uh, your attempt at retirement. You got approached uh, by these three gents to become the chairman of the company. Um, there's a lot in this book. I, I don't think we're going to have time to talk about some, some adventures and misadventures in uh, Madagascar, Libya, Sudan, a few other places. Some other familiar names that came up in the book that I had to chuckle a little bit as I, uh, as I didn't know everything that those individuals were a part of <laughs> until I read your book. Um, but I'd like to first talk about Uganda a little bit. And in the United States, uh, something happened here, which was, of course, the Kony 2012 documentary that was made, which kind of brought a longstanding issue in Uganda to the forefront. And I was wondering if you could tell us how you were initially approached by uh, Mr. Warren Poole and brought into this project in Uganda. Well, first of all, I think, you know, the... the production and showing of the documentary about Kony, I think was very, very important because it made the world aware of a, a really bad person running around doing exactly what he wants to do. Um, but you know, prior to that, um, the LRA had become a thorn in the side of several governments. Um, you might have read in the book about the Guatemalan misadventure that were trained by yeah your special forces who went into on a UN mission to sort of stop the LRA and had their heads chopped off. Um, 
you know, and, and, and that sort of thing was forever there. Everyone knew about it, but no one really spoke about it. Um, so when the, the video came out on, on the Coney, I think it was Coney 2012 or something, I think you just mentioned yeah. it, um, it was very interesting because it did make the world aware of, of one of the bad characters running around in, in Africa. Um, I was then approached by um, Lauren Poole, as you might have read in the book, heck of a nice young guy, um, and asked whether we would consider looking at training a specific unit for the Ugandan army in order to actually go after Kony and hunt Kony and get rid of him and his, his cabal. Um, part of the problem was that a lot of these people with Kony are children. Um, they are kids who've been kidnapped, they're five, six years old when they're kidnapped, they're brutalized, they're forced to do things. So, you know, they're, they're already very traumatized by what's going on. And the problem then is to distinguish between who are the legitimate bad guys and which are the kids, because Lauren Poole and his group wanted to actually get these kids out and rehabilitate them and, and, and actually make them something in society. So that was really where it all started. And so then from that point, how, how did you merge with Lauren's efforts? And then it turned out that there was a benefactor um, behind him, I believe, um, and then making contact with the Ugandan military and government. And, and like, how, how did all of these forces get brought together? Well, prior to Lauren even approaching me, um, I'd been in Uganda working with the Ugandan Defense Force on the development of doctrine. Um, so I knew a lot of the senior officers in the Ugandan People's Defense Force. Um, and I said to Larry that, you know, regardless, the Ugandans have to have a buy-in on this. And I would discuss it with them. And if they were okay with it, then we would be willing to assist them. Um, I contacted several general officers of the Ugandan military and they were amenable to the idea and you know everything started happening from there. I think that's kind of an important point to, to, to highlight because a lot of people when they think of what you do even they think about these wild off-the-wall mercenary operations but this was also with a cooperation and invitation of the Ugandan government it wasn't a rogue operation. <laughs> No, not at all. Um, you know, and this is just to me the the short sightedness which people have that write about this. We cannot ten or twelve of us, as was the case with Uganda, go in there on our own and suddenly decide what we're going to be doing. They have a professional military. Um, how on earth can ten people go in and dictate what an army must do? You know, so it's just the, the idiocy of it, and it really just shows a total lack of understanding, not only of Africa, but of how armies in Africa work. Could you talk to us a little bit about uh, Shannon Sedgwick Davis? I, I thought she was a fascinating person in your book, and the way that you and Loki uh, made contact with her, and, and just, she had, it struck me, the passion and the, and, and the will to try to do something positive in, in Uganda. And, but even you and your men were the ones who kind of made it happen on the ground, or at least began to make it happen. Well, it could never have happened without her. Um, 
I mean, that's the reality of it. I think she is a fascinating person in that she was very passionate about what Laren and them wanted to achieve. Um, and she was very focused on what she wanted us to achieve. Um, you know, and, and she insisted on always being kept up to date. It wasn't a matter of looking over our shoulders. She said, you know, what are you going to be doing? We told her this is what we're going to be doing. Um, so she was really there to, she was really the fire or the spark that lit the fire in, in terms of um, counter LRA operations. Unfortunately, um, when word got out and it wasn't through us, what was happening in Uganda, she became, um, <laughs> she was approached by your authorities and told to shut down and get rid of us. Um, and and that's, that was really what happened in, in, in brief. I mean, there's a lot, there's a backstory to all of that. But she was really the, the driving force behind everything. Could you just explain who this person was? I mean, she wasn't just some random person. I mean, she had a, a sizable organization that she was running to support these efforts. Yes, well, she, she works for um, people who deal with money. Um, she's a, a highly qualified, educated person. Um, she's worked in dangerous areas before, mainly in regards to tra child trafficking in the Far East. And she's not a person who will, you know, buckle down to anyone demanding something unless it's, it's very, very serious. But yes, she, there's a big organization behind her, and they were quite willing to donate their money in order to end what was happening in Uganda. And of course, obviously with Ugandan buying in the whole entire operation. So then what's the next step from there to op create, you, you had to create a plan and then operationalize it in Uganda. Yeah, well, as I say, I, I knew the Ugandan generals, um, some of them, and what was striking to me was that when I told them what I envisaged, they were quite happy to go along with it. Um, and bear in mind, they'd known me from the 90s already, some of these generals, so it wasn't a matter of they didn't know me at all. Mm -hmm. The strategy was developed, and as you know, the, the, the strategy is what leads to the, the structure of an organization. You don't design an organization and then try and build a strategy around what you have. You actually have your ends and ends leads to the organizational hierarchy. So speaking to the Ugandans, I said to them that I did not think the current way of fighting the LRA or, or any such type of movement is relevant. Um, <laughs> World War II sections, platoons, companies, battalions don't work and we would like to structure differently. And the chief of the army said, fine, go ahead and do it and, and prove the concept. Um, which also told me that the Ugandans were very open-minded about it. Um, they were willing to debate issues they felt weren't properly carried across or that they, they felt were wrong. Um, and it was really a great way in which to, to build a unit, and those were known as the special operations groups. In fact, two of them were trained, and um, these guys did very, very well in the field. So I proved the concept. 
Could you talk a little bit about the the training camp that your men established and just the, the like? Uh, what struck me was the incredibly austere conditions that these guys were working in. It wasn't the typical private security contractor job where these guys are staying in hotels. Like they were out in the bush the entire time. Jack, we've always believed if we train troops, we live as they live. Um, we eat what they eat. We are from Africa. We don't. We don't need a Kentucky Fried Chicken um, or a McDonald's outlet close to us. Um, you know, if they eat rice and beans, that's what we eat. We eat rice and beans. If they live under trees and under bivvies, we live under trees and under bivvies. Um, that's one way in which you get troops to understand that you are there to actually be with them, um, that you are willing to share the tough times with them, and equally that you're willing to share good times with them. So we had, you know, the guys lived, they went and bought themselves pup tents eventually. Um, you know, and these were small one-man tents, and they lived in these tents for three, four months at a stretch. Um, and that was home. We had some tents the Ugandan military gave us. Some of them had pretty big holes in, but we used what we had. Um, because our philosophy is we use what a government gives us. Um, and obviously the tents we needed, because when rains came, it rains out there. The area where the training was was close to the DRC-Sudan um, border. Pretty rough country. Um, you know, not unusual for a, a mamba to fall out of a tree and land on top of a tent and slither down the tent and go off on its own. Um, so it, it, it was um, rough country, but the guys did well. Even, so what makes you so successful what made eo so successful in the early days and then you being able to approach these generals in uganda and and the clout that you have i mean <clears throat> could you have taken anybody from the ccb and and uh, i mean there are a lot of other people that didn't achieve what you did is it your ability to organize is it your your brilliance is it your passion is it your ability to think outside the box uh, is it the people you know like uh, why are you so successful over the long term against so many organizations? First of all, Dave, I'm, I'm successful in that sense because I have good men with me. Um, where I'm weak, there are guys that are strong. Um, and I think that's what makes a team, really. Um, but going back to why was EO successful, why was STEP successful, it has to do with a campaign strategy. There has to be a focused ends, that ends has to be aligned with a national strategy. Um, and if those two are aligned, you can win. Um, often I watch, and, and I say this with great respect, foreign forces come into Africa, they don't understand the operating environment, they don't understand the area of operations, they don't understand the people, and there's no campaign strategy. So you cannot just train troops to train troops because actually then you're wasting time and money. Troops need to be trained for the mission. Um, and the mission is determined out of the campaign strategy. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. So I think that's what's what's made these companies successful. One of the big 
um, mistakes that, if I can be so bold to say, on, on the American side, uh, as you know, a, a former Green Beret myself and, and kind of covering these things as a journalist, is we come into foreign countries and we try to create mirror images of ourselves. Um, we try to take American military doctrine and train foreign units in very different situations, very different circumstances, and the same tactics that American soldiers use. Um, which, of course, as Americans, we're lucky we have F-16 fighter jets that can call in airstrikes. We have all this medical support. We have all these indirect fire systems. When you're training an indigenous military unit. They don't have those things frequently. So, I, I mean, I think that if I could be so bold, even, I think that may also be a part of it is that you guys are Africans and you understand the operational environment better and you tailor the training and the campaign strategy to that specific situation rather than bringing in a big book of doctrine <laughs> and throwing it down on the table and saying, this is what we're going to use. Jack, I think, you know, you touched on a very important point, doctrine. If you go back to doctrine, it started really to, to develop this doctrine after World War One, and, and was sort of refined in World War Two as we entered new generations of warfare. Um, and these doctrines haven't changed much. Um, if you look at African armies, were taught doctrine by their colonial masters, for want of a better word, or their Cold War allies. And those were doctrines designed for the West to fight the East somewhere in bloody Europe. Right. Um, now you want to take that and bend it so that it suits a specific environment in Africa. It's not going to work. Um, and as you rightfully say, you know, these are, are not high-tech wars. We're not calling in airstrikes with F-16s and, and where we have Apache gunships. We're lucky if we have one MI-24. Um, if we have, you know, two or three helicopters going, we're really excited because then we've got some ability to maneuver. So, you know, you, you, you cannot teach people maneuver warfare, but they don't have the assets with which to do it. Right, right. Um, or, 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 or teach them maneuver warfare and then sell them the crap no one else wants, mm -hmm. um, which is going to break down immediately. And, and I, have a, I have a problem with that. And even maybe on that note, this would be a, a good point to talk about the campaign strategy you had set out for the special operations group in Uganda and the difficulties that you had with that maneuver piece with the helicopters and country. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. When you talk of a nightmare, um, is when you really have, and we had very good Ugandan troops who were, who were very well trained, very positive, wanted to do something, and I started noticing a problem quite early on because I was asked to deploy into the DRC as a UPDF guy because we become part of, of their structures um, and take over a battalion known as 31 Battalion who were busy with counter LRA operations. 
The problem was that the air assets, which were two or three MI8s, belonged to PAE. And, and, and they had subcontracted uh, some Ukrainian guys to fly them. So before any airlift could take place, a request had to go to the Ukrainian guys who would contact um, PAE, who would then contact State Department. Um, so you had this lengthy line of communications. And eventually, to us, it was the air assets were of more value to the enemy than what they were to the client. Um, you know, and people can criticize me for saying that, but that's just the truth. When we called for air support, and not in terms of a strike, just for air lift, we were told, no, it's, you know, it's going to rain, or the pilots are tired, or they're servicing the aircraft. And it just became a joke. Um, you know, in troops, there, there was one um, UPDF platoon that, by the time we asked for airlift, had already walked on foot 600 kilometers through jungle. But they can't get air support. And we had to try use an old vehicle to try and position guys. When we determined, you know, the, the aim is to, to basically do dummy drops on the side of the enemy and channel them to a specific direction, which we, we bluffed them into believing. And they went for a specific river crossing point in Central Africa Republic. Um, we still couldn't get airlift capacity. And, and to me, it was, you know, what are these guys being paid for? Are they being paid to just sit around and, and fly what they think are the, the glory flights? Or are they too scared to fly? Or do they just don't want to fly? Um, and this is something I brought up with um, our sponsors at that time to say, look, this is only going to work if we control the air assets. It got to a point where I was told I'm not allowed on board the helicopters. You know, my first lift out of the DRC, the Ugandans brought in a small helicopter to fetch me. It was just myself and my medic, a man called Sean, who was with me in the DRC. Because the contracted helicopters, paid for by the U.S. government, would not fly in to fetch us. But, you know, this is ridiculous. And that type of thing does not win you friends. It builds up animosity towards you. You know, I'm not the enemy. The Ugandans aren't the enemy. Right. And unless we are actually secretly the enemy. Well, so it was very, very frustrating. It, it did seem, as you write about it in your book, that the United States and the, the State Department and in the United States Special Forces were trying to stymie your efforts over there. I mean, eventually we got off our asses on our side and we started to try to get into Uganda to deal with the LRA. You, your guys were already there. What, what was this friction? Um, why, did, why do you think that existed and, and what did they do to kind of try to push you out? Well, I think, obviously, I can't answer for the U.S., number one. Number two, um, the sending in of the 100 Special Forces guys um, was under the previous U.S. administration, okay, um, who suddenly got whatever they needed. Um, but 
were not very keen on using the special operations groups that had been trained. In fact, a lot of them were redeployed to Mogadishu as part of the um, AU force over there. And to us, this is just unbelievable. These are guys that are trained in jungle warfare. You don't deploy them to Mogadishu. Um, and, and, and there was a lot of very negative feedback from the Ugandans concerning the U.S. Special Forces um, in Uganda. And then I have to tell you what really got my goat was the very misleading article that said four Green Berets had destroyed Kony, and I think I included in the book, yeah. um, giving no credit to the Ugandans, who were the guys who actually did the heavy lifting. But number two, Kony wasn't destroyed. He's still out there. Um, you know, so there's, and there's no friction between us and the U.S. I'm talking soldier to soldier. But when foreign interests start actually derailing operations in order to exert influence on an area, I think a problem is bound to happen. It's not going to win your friends ultimately. You know, there's a difference between how the traditional East come and do business in Africa and how the traditional West do business. The traditional West wants to militarize Africa and it creates a huge amount of problems. The traditional East are buying up Africa. So they, they're negating that influence the West thinks it has and which it is steadily losing in Africa. Where do you think old Joe Coney really was and, and is? Well, he was in Central African Republic. Yeah. But you know, the aim was to to clear them out of the DRC into Central Africa Republic. There is a Ugandan, or there was in, in the time we were there, a, a, an agreement between the DRC, Central Africa Republic, Southern Sudan, and Uganda to conduct cross-border operations. Um, if we could have driven Kony out of the DRC and ultimately into um, Southern Sudan or into the hills in Darfur, we could have wiped them out. Um, but it, it didn't work that way simply because we had to do the walking um, because helicopters weren't available to, to actually implement the plan that was put into place. What was it like for you going out on ops with these guys? I mean, no, no offense, Eben, but you're not a 20-year-old uh, you know, lieutenant in the SADF anymore. Um, but you were still going out on patrol with these guys a few times out in the bush. Jack, we have a belief that if you train troops, um, you don't train them and send them off to go and do something on their own. Um, you go with them. And if you can't go with them, don't train them. Um, it was bloody tough. Um, you know, as you say, I'm no longer a 20-year-old second lieutenant. I'm a 25-year-old lieutenant now. Um, every, every step I take, the kit gets heavier. Um, you know, um, I struggled, and if, if anyone kept those troops, if anyone broke their speed, it was probably me. Um, but I like to think that we have such good relations with these guys that they they overlook my my um, hampering of their operational tempo. Uh, but you know, every morning, despite these guys being heavily weighed down with equipment and ammunition, they would come to me every single morning and ask if they could carry my kit for me. And to me, that's a sign that we've earned their trust 
and we've earned their respect by being willing to put in the hard yards with them, eat the same what they eat, live as they live, and actually fight as they fight. Even it must have been very frustrating uh, when you say that if you would have just had uh, air support, mm -hmm. that you could have, you know, accomplished these goals and and whatnot. Uh, how? Was Uganda and, and the military not in the position to, like, purchase airframes, train up air crews, um, and, and develop that capability without contracting it out? You have to remember, Dave, that Uganda has a very large contingent in Mogadishu um, that is actually one of the prime operations that they, at that stage, were busy with. Okay. So, in many ways, the LRA was... A sort of a sideshow in a sense, still a very important sideshow, but a sideshow in, in comparison with Mogadishu. Um, the air assets the Ugandans had were primarily deployed into um, Mogadishu and Somalia area. And I also think that the um, contracting in of, of airlift capability was really primarily done to support and sustain um, the 4th Infantry Division's base in southern Sudan. Um, so, and I think that's how the contractors ended up there. Um, but it didn't, it didn't help much in terms of operational airlift. Right. It didn't help at all. And so what, what operations, before things, before that friction got so bad that you guys were kind of forced out of the country, um, what sorts of operations did uh, this the Special Operations Group and some of your men uh, run in, in Uganda and the surrounding countries? Well, the first um, Special Operations Group that deployed was initially sent off to um, 4th Infantry at Nazara um, in southern Sudan. And um, as I write, my medic and I, we deployed with them. So we were the only two pale faces with the Ugandans in the DRC. Um, and it was mainly, you know, locate the LRA and annihilate them. Um, a lot of ambushes were laid. But again, you know, if, if the enemy is moving at a speed through terrain that he knows and you don't know, the ability to leapfrog your men ahead of him and to the sides of him is critically important. Um, we couldn't do that, so we had to try and bluff um, and use vehicles to drop, uh, one vehicle, didn't have vehicles, um, to drop guys off, and those vehicles had problems. You know, so it became an exercise. In fact, I wrote to Shannon to say that, you know, we actually cannot, if, if we carry on like this, we're just wasting money and time. Um, and we're not in the game of, of wasting people's money. Um, get us the air assets and, and we'll end these guys. But obviously there's only a certain amount that they could um, donate to the UPDF and ultimately then became what we got paid to do our training because that was the agreement. Um, you know, let me just say that the UPDF, through no fault of theirs, just didn't have that air support. You know, it was just wasn't available because primarily they bogged down in Mogadishu. And, and then, how did the how did that finally happen? That the whole 
um, Uganda mission kind of got shut down for you guys. And I, I remember you wrote in the book about there's also a accident with a Dishka machine gun and, and some of your guys got hurt pretty badly. Yeah, but that, that wasn't the reason um, yeah, no, I know. for us leaving Uganda. Um, the um, Dishka training was going to be done on it. Um, the guys stripped the gun down, cleaned it, took it to the range. I think it was a Sunday. Um, drew ammunition from the store and a faulty round exploded in the chamber. Um, and a couple of guys got pretty badly hurt. Um, one or two of them said they're staying up there, they're seeing the end of the contract. Um, but guys who were really badly hurt were brought back to South Africa. Um, I was told that there was a visit um, by US authorities to Shannon um, and that certain files were taken and, and certain instructions were given to shut down the operation. Um, and she discussed it with us, um, you know, and, and I have to also appreciate that, you know, she's approached by the US government, she's a US citizen, and she has to comply with whatever is told to her. Um, the end result was, is that Cody is still around. Um, whereas had we been able to finish what we started, and had we had the air assets, we could have ended this, but that wasn't destined for us. Even with such a successful track record in, in Africa, in different parts of Africa, do you know why the U.S. didn't approach you or didn't try to onboard you or exactly. even ask you for training, area fam, you know, indoctrination, those sorts of things? I have no idea, Dave. <laughs> It's something, you know, we can speculate about it, but I am told I'm not exactly going to get a Christmas card from the U.S. <laughs> we'll send you one. And that's, that's, that's a strange thing, you know. We're not, we're not enemies of the U.S. We, we, we see ourselves as, as fighting the same enemy. Right. Um, but unfortunately, for some reasons, we're the bad guys in everything. Yeah. Which is kind of silly if you think about it, because if our government was a little bit smarter about it, they would use you guys as essentially proxies um, to do these things, to, to take care of some of these bad actors out there. And, you know, from our government's perspective, if things go wrong, you know what they're going to do. Ah, well, it's the South Africans. Nothing we can do. Right. <laughs> I mean, really, that's, that's how that would go down. No, I, I understand that. Um, I think also part of the problem is we're not controlled by um, a sponsor. Yeah. We go to a country to work with that country's government and that country's armed forces. What we do aligns with what they ends on. We're not going to come in and throw our weight around and say, no, you, know, you can't do this or you're going to do that or we're going to withhold funding from you. You know, we, we, we're not in that game. <laughs> Besides, we don't have the money with which to threaten them with anyway. Right. Um, ultimately, I think. What is becoming a problem is a clash of domestic interests with foreign interests. And governments have allowed that to happen. And, and, and when a country's domestic interests clash with the foreign interests of a, of a, of a superpower, the country's going to lose unless they stand up for themselves. I, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit to get into uh, Nigeria and Boko Haram. Um, but before moving on, just something I wanted to say about your book, even, 
is that I thought it did a terrific job at shedding light on what's considered a very dark and shadowy world. And you know as well as I do all the things that are published about yourself and about private military companies that make it seem very sinister. Uh, in your book, you talk about writing out the, uh, the table of organization and equipment for this unit in Uganda, and you're writing it out on your kitchen table because your desk is such a mess. And it's like, you know, this is just a guy trying to do something to be helpful. Uh, I mean, this is not the dark, shadowy, uh, sinister thing that it's been made out to be. Um, and I think people will be quite surprised when they read your book. No, Jack, they, they have to make it sinister because they've lied so much in the past and they have to stick with their narrative. Um, they can't change it now and say everything we wrote previously was a lot of lies and we were secretly paid for it. I think if anyone moves in the dark secret world with some people in the media, um, you know, we, we're transparent with what we do, but we're only transparent with that government um, that we are under contract to or working with. And if there's an external sponsor, we're transparent with that person. Other than that, it's got nothing to do with the media. Besides, all these people writing these stories, what have they contributed toward Africa? Let's be quite honest. A big fat zero. Right. They have lied, tried to create division, sowed discord, misled and misdirected people. Um, yet they have the final say on what's going to happen in Africa and, and actually have the goal to criticize African governments for calling on Africans to help. It's like, you know, are they living in a different bloody dimension or what's going on? Even, uh, you know, they, they, in, in the press, they sometimes refer to you as some sort of a uh, rabid dog of war. But uh, for my part, I always found you to be a nice guy. <laughs> I don't believe them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's their problem, Jack. Uh, I was wondering then, could you tell us about the Chibok schoolgirls in your entry into the conflict in Nigeria? We help protect and grow everything you've worked so hard to build. We are Acrisure. Okay, well, um, I think everyone knows about the Shibok girls who were kidnapped um, from the, the school they were at and taken hostage by Boko Haram. Um, Boko Haram, as you mentioned earlier, is an is a internationally recognized terrorist movement that has its roots in Islam. Um, so our contract was, and, and, and we were a subcontractor to the entire endeavor, was to train a hostage rescue team to rescue the Shibok girls. That was the initial mission. Uh -huh. The time frame given to us was three months. Um, the initial plan was we're going to select a group of guys from the Nigerian army um, who, by the way, I must tell you, are, are very nice guys. They're good troops. They're keen to learn. And as soon as they realize they're not being bullshitted as they have been for many years by foreign trainers, they're very keen to actually do their job. So, you know, had to, to those guys, those Nigerians we worked with, Anyway, we started whittling them down to get a sizable team for a hostage rescue operation. Um, shortly after that, probably about three weeks after we started there, um, we were asked to change the mission because 7th Division up at Maraguri was about to be overrun by Boko Haram. And 
should we suddenly change? Now, you know, we're training guys for hostage rescue. Suddenly we have to train people to become a lot more offensive. And in hostage rescue, you're looking for a specific type of guy who's not going to just shoot whatever pops up out the bush. He's going to identify and then fire. Now we have to change this and take these guys and say, no, 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 wait, now we're going to change the way you're going to go to war. So we structured a new unit called the 72nd Mobile Strike Force. And again, with very little equipment. Um, you know, the media claimed we'd arrived with tanks and fighter aircraft and helicopters, all lies. Um, what we did get were MRAPs from South Africa. And we asked for South African ones because we know them and we trust them. Um, Helicopter-wise, we had MI-24-1. We had two civilian gazelles that had modified by our own people with 12.7-millimeter um, guns mounted in the doors. And we had two or three um, UH helicopters. And we had a, a one Puma. And that was basically it. So we structured this force, rushed off to Maiduguri, um, met the commander of the division and said to him, look, you know, we understand your situation. Um, we understand that a lot of your guys have, have actually suffered at the bad end of the enemy and we need to fix this. So would you allow us to develop a strategy, a campaign strategy? We as this mobile strike force will act as the spear of your division. We will take the enemy on. And your division follows behind, or your units of the division, and start holding the ground which the strike force has taken. Um, and the the um, division commander, hell of a nice guy. Um, but I'll just give you an example. We used to have our meetings at two o'clock in the morning, um, you know. So and he was busy throughout the day. So it wasn't that this guy was sitting doing nothing. Um, so we'd have our meetings and we'd discuss these things and throw around ideas and, and how we can best achieve things. And when we started, the first phase of our operation was to drive a, a wedge right through terrain so-called held by Boko Haram. Um, the division would stabilize it and hold it. And then phase two is we'd move south and clear them out the south. And phase three, clear them out the north. Um, Unfortunately, it never turned out that way because even the division commander had certain political um, obstacles to overcome. And I remember the moment where it broke in the media that there were South African military contractors in Nigeria. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And then I started poking around a little bit and I realized you were over there. <laughs> and, um, and we started talking a little bit about it. But um well, what, what was that pressure like on you and your men at that point that suddenly there was a tremendous amount of, of public pressure, um, or, or should I say attention at least, on what you guys were doing over there? Well, I think you know, the, the, the pressure started when the prime contractor, and I say again, we were subcontractors to this, gave the story to the media. The media added their own take on it, and you know whether he did it for the right or the wrong reasons is irrelevant. He shouldn't have done it, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but yes, there was suddenly huge pressure. And, and once again, just the hypocrisy of it all. 
everyone's shouting, Nigeria, do something about Boko Haram. Yeah. When they do it, but they do it with South Africans, it's, it's an international disaster right. in, in terms of media reportage. And, you know, we, we um, integrate with these armies we work with. So we wear their uniforms, we address them by their ranks, them by our ranks, and there's structure to this. This isn't, you know, some lunatic force put together that just goes and does what it wants to do. Um, there's a huge amount of discipline in this and, and very much awareness as to who is the enemy and who isn't the enemy. Um, so it's always interesting for us to sit back and, and you know, read the rubbish that's written about us. Um, it got so bad that the South African Minister of Defence wanted us arrested when we came back to South Africa for daring to help the Nigerians. You know, now to me, this is just, once again, the madness of what sometimes goes on. Um, be that as it may, we finished our three-month term, um, but as we were nearing the end of our three months, we were told that there will be um, a, a change in government, and that that new government will make sure that we will no longer be in Nigeria. You know, and as I've said before, we're not going to get into a pissing contest with anyone. They want to come and do it, let them come and do it. Just a pity that the seven years prior to us getting there, nothing was done. Right. You know, window dressing training. Right. I had never seen an AK blank before, Jack, until I got to Nigeria. So what sort of training are, are these guys being given? And to me it's sad because the Nigerian soldier is a bloody good soldier if he's properly trained and led. Right. And probably the way it was being reported and, and spread out is almost as if you had your own French Foreign Legion there. You know, uh, you know th this whole army of, of mercenaries. Well, yeah, they made it seem like it was Mike Horn Five Commando back in, back in the old days. Right. And, uh, and, and it just wasn't. And I was mentioning to you before we got started even um, that at the time, um, just as I think you guys were just in the process of leaving Nigeria, uh, I had written an article where I quoted you and you were disputing some of the things in the press that were saying that you and your men were these sort of South African apartheid era relics, these racists that just, you know, kind of revel in killing black people. And you were very much disputing that fact. Um, and I remember I published that article, and within like maybe 12 hours, The Guardian had published like a full rebuttal to it. It was clear that they were responding to what I had published, and they were quoting these academics and these professors, and they were what they were saying was, because you had served as soldiers under the apartheid government in South Africa back in the 1980s and, and early 90s, they were making it like... None of you could ever contribute anything positive to the world that you would be forever these apartheid racists and, and that, that's it, full stop. I, I thought it was just incredible to see the way that they, they painted all of you in that light. You know, Jack, the interesting thing is that journalists who write that type of thing seldom leave their offices. Right. If you really think about it, the guys of EO and the guys of STEP we're not only South Africans, we're not only white. We had guys from the SADF, yes. We had guys from the ANC, which was their military wing, Nkonto Wesizwe. We had guys from Namibia. We had Angolans with us. We had some Ugandans with us. Now, 
Did any right-thinking person in his mind think that we're going to go into Nigeria and act as though we are colonizing Nigeria? Do you think they're going to put up with that? Do you think they're going to allow us to harm a single Nigerian? Right. Well, I'm serious. I, I ask this a, a, a question. Do you think that the Nigerians will allow 20 whites to come in there and start killing Nigerians? Man, they will hack us to death with machetes. Um, but this has to be fed to people. Um, the narrative must be driven that all the problems in Africa really are caused by whites or caused by blacks. Um, you know, and that no white and no black can contribute anything meaningful to this continent. And it's almost this this desire of people in the media to try and suppress the people of this continent. I will tell you that I will fight with a black soldier any day of the week if he's properly trained and properly led. Right. No doubt about it. And sadly, I cannot say that for many white soldiers. I'm an African. I might be a bloody pale face. But this is where I live. This is where I've contributed to this continent. And if people don't like that, that's their problem, not mine. Right. Of all these journalists who, who wrote about it, how, how many of them came out and visited you? How many of them reported from on the ground, uh, you know, from the front line, as it were? Well, that, that was challenging because I tried. <laughs> no excuses there, Jack. Um, <laughs> in the time of Executive Outcomes, Dave, there was one. And that was a guy called Jim Hooper. Mm -hmm. Um, who came out to Sierra Leone and spent time with us in Sierra Leone. Um, there were journalists that we took up to Angola who were more interested in, in seeing how much they could drink um, <laughs> at night. And I'm serious. They sometimes had to be put in bed by the guys they were going to come back and write rubbish about. Um, but there was one journalist, yeah. Jim Rupert, and that was it. And Jim wrote what he perceived happening on the ground and he and and look jim is critical of us when he has to be critical and we accept it. um but at least he writes facts and he doesn't embroider it with innuendos and little stories that he makes up right could you then talk us through some of the, the battles that the 72nd mobile strike force and, and your guys participated in to confess that I didn't partake in many battles with them. I was um, during phase one of what was initially the campaign strategy was to drive a wedge between the area so-called controlled by Boko Haram. Um, I was in the force that took a town called Marfa um, and suddenly we were told to stop. There was pressure being put on the Nigerians and we had to withdraw back to Maiduguri. Um, at that stage, I then had to leave because I was on my way to Garamba National Park in the DRC with one of my guys. Um, but the force went on. There were several isolated ambushes they drove into and little attacks they did. Um, but probably the big one was um, a town called Bama, which was a, a very large Boko Haram concentration and, and sort of safe zone which they took along with members of the um, 7th Division. 
But there were many isolated skirmishes that took place. And there was also uh, that unfortunate blue-on-blue incident with the Nigerian military. And not to belabor this point, but I thought it was interesting, you point out in your book as well, that one of your men, uh, a white South African, was lost, but also a black uh, African was lost in that, in that contact. Really, only one was focused on internationally, sadly. Yeah, no. I know, and there were Nigerian guys wounded in the back of that vehicle as well. And it's almost as though they were all glossed over. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't matter. Um, which is, in a way, I had to laugh when the, the Black Lives Matter movement <laughs> started because all of this was about a white life that had been lost. And no one spoke of the, the black guys that had died or the black guy that had died um, or the locals that are being slaughtered on a daily basis out there. No one makes anything of that. And when you try and stop it, you are suddenly the bad guy. Um, you know, there's this great hypocrisy that reigns. But as I said to you earlier, Orwell taught us, in a time of universal deceit, the truth is a revolutionary act. And in your book, I mean, I think that you're incredibly candid in it about mistakes, things that went wrong, uh, frictions, even between your own men. And the, the fallout from that particular incident, that blue-on-blue contact, was a, a, a veteran uh, who you uh, appear to greatly admire and respect. He ended up leaving the company because he got blamed for that incident, whether rightly or wrongly. Well, you know, I, I have to ultimately be held accountable for that because I had made an assumption. I was on my way to the DRC. Um, to a place called Garamba National Park. There was going to be a link-up operation, and I asked, are you guys happy with how you've planned the link-up operation? And they said yes. And I should have questioned in more depth, but I didn't. Um, And there were many factors that led up to that problem. Um, You know, there was a lack of communication, timings weren't adhered to um, by forces, there was a host of problems. The end result was that, and there's still the belief that there were members of the um, division that purposely fired at the strike force entering or coming close to the division's lager area for the night. And it was a tank that shot out one of the MRAPs. The, the story is horrifying that you, you relate in the book where the T-72 tank rolls into the middle of the street and elevates its gun turret on them. And they're like, they're like he's yelling, turn off the headlights, turn off the headlights. Yeah, Jack, this wasn't even in the street. This is going cross-country. Mm-hmm. You know, there are very few roads there. But they saw him, and they, they actually switched on their lights to warn the, the division's lager area that they're approaching. You know, so, but again, you know, I've said it before, we suffered from a lack of equipment, we suffered from a lack of communications. Um, and communications with the division lager area was by a satellite phone to Maiduguri and then relayed back to the division's lager area. You know, you, you, it's very difficult to work like that. And for our American viewers out there, um, just have to dispel you from some of the ideas that you might have about military operations. 
Um, these guys did not have night vision goggles. Um, they did not have high-tech radios. They did not have any of the things that we would be used to using in the United States military. Um, as Eben said, these are very low-tech battles that are being fought out there. Well, and even with all of our high-tech resources, we still, we still have blue on blue. I mean, yeah. we you know during the opening phase of the Iraq War, we had a uh, a tank fire on on a U.S. vehicle. Uh, you know that they were in the same they're in the same movement they just got separated and the tank fired so even with all the high-end and high-tech stuff it's very easy to get confused in that sort of fog of war environment you know, Dave, that, that is true it happens and it happens all over the world that you get these i'm not blaming the nigerians per se for what happened right what i am saying is ultimately i'm accountable for that because i never questioned um so I should carry the blame for that. I was, an aircraft was waiting to uplift me. Um, and if they didn't uplift me, I would have to wait a week, um, which has a huge knock-on effect all across all the other operations and things happening. Right. Um, no, there's no night vision equipment. Um, you know, one of the problems we had in Uganda as well. Um, we don't have thermal imaging. We don't have drones. We don't have air support on call. Um, we have to make do with what there is. So was it disappointing? Problematic. Yeah. Was it disappointing after the presidential elections that you had not yet completed the mission and yet Step was being asked to leave the country? And, and you guys, of course, you did the right thing. You left the country. You're not there to launch a coup or, or anything <laughs> of this nature. But it must have been disappointing that the mission had not been completed. Well, the disappointment started a bit earlier than that, Jack, that, you know, the, the campaign strategy, which I write about in the book, I know would have worked. It would have cleared out the enemy uh -huh. um, in, 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 the, in the division operational area of operations that we were working in. Um, we knew the contract was three months. Um, we were initially told it is going to be extended to allow us to finish what we started. Um, but then it became apparent that it is a political thing. And remember, we guests in a country. We don't we don't arrive there with a division or a brigade or anything. We arrive with very few people, relatively speaking. Um, we are guests in that country. And if that government says, you know what, you have to leave, or, or the military tells us you have to leave because it's it's becoming a there's a clash of foreign interests going on over here, we'll leave. You know, we're not there to to, as I said earlier, get into a pissing contest with anyone. The government says leave, we leave. <laughs> we're there to, to do a job. Um, if we're not allowed to finish the job, the, the um, comeback on that is not on us. It's on that government. Right. We have uh, some pretty big issues to get into, but I'm going to hit some viewer questions first. Um, Alex asks, Are there, is there going to be an audio version of your books? Not at the moment that I'm aware of. I don't know who will read it. <laughs> I, I mean, there's a lot of interest, I think. Um, Ian asks uh, if you can weigh in on the Chibok girls. You already talked about that. Uh, it fell out of the news here shortly after the hashtag activism failed. Um, were they freed? What, what, what was the ultimate fate of those schoolgirls? No, a lot of them are still being held captive. Um, you know, some of them were released, some escaped, but there are still some of those girls with Boko Haram. 
And, you know, obviously the way it works is a lot of them are forced into marriage and to have children. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a question right underneath that that I just happen to see. It's, it just says from Riseguard. Can you please tell uh, Eben Barlow that he is a great inspiration for me? So I just want well, to pass. That's nice. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, one gentleman here, DJD, uh, asks, what are Eben's thoughts about the recent changes as the Ethiopian government shifts from the TPLF government that has been in power for the past 30 years, and how might that affect all of Africa? First of all, I don't have particular thoughts on Ethiopia simply because it's never been an area we've really looked at. Um, you know, the, the internal dynamics within the country itself um, are really for Ethiopia to, to resolve. But I think part of the, the very long-running tensions between Ethiopia and Eritrea um, could become a problem as well as the dam that's being built in the Nile River. Um, I think there could be some tension developing over there. But, you know, what we're currently seeing unfolding in Tigray area and that, I cannot comment on it because I haven't really studied the oranges, the origins of the problem. Um, and therefore, you know, I'm not qualified to talk on it. And uh, Jerwain just want to say thank you to you, man. Um, so there are some other um, bigger things I wanted to get into, but I think one of the ones, one of the bigger ones that people are asking about is you wrote on social media recently that you are reviving executive outcomes, that you stepped down as the chairman of STEP uh, several years ago, and that you're re reviving executive outcomes. I mean, after so much drama and melodrama surrounding executive outcomes, what inspired you to do this? What, what, what's going through your mind right now that you, uh, you decided to take this course of action? Well, first of all, I left STEP um, for reasons I write in the book. Um, I don't know if you've completed the book yet, Jack, but yeah, yeah. there comes a time where I say I cannot accept what's, what happened. And therefore, you know, I stepped down as, as your chairman. I was never a shareholder of the company, so I could leave. Um, as soon as it became known that I'd left, there were governments that approached me through their people here in Pretoria and, and by phone to say, look, we understand you've left. Please restart executive outcomes. And to me, it was, I didn't want to restart the company, but it was really pressure from a few governments that said, okay, I'll do it then. Um, governments have long since seen through the deception and, and the lies and the bullshit about executive outcomes. And a lot of governments admitted it several years ago that they now un only then understood how they'd been lied to about executive outcomes. Um, you know, it's not me sitting here saying we did good in Africa and we saving Africa. That's not, that's not what it's about. The company did incredibly good work, saved hundreds of thousands of lives, um, and governments have now finally understood that, you know, all these backstories added on were just lies. Mm -hmm. So they wanted the company to be reestablished, which is what I then did. I, what do you do? You have any plans for the types of contracts you would like to secure? What what uh, direction you'd like to head on? Are we talking about advisory work, or are you <laughs> looking to really bring back the types of operations that you did back in the uh, 1990s? You know, executive outcomes um, saw its mission to support 
assist, train, and mentor government forces. Very similar to what STEP later did. Um, executive Outcomes is going to do exactly what it did in the past, um, but there are other elements that are going to be added onto it. There are, there's a lot of talk right now, and I believe some of the former employees of yours um, are already active in Mozambique. And, and you wrote about Mozambique a little bit towards the end of your book and the problems that they're having. Um, tremendous hydrocarbon reserves found off the coast of Mozambique, which is no doubt going to lead to all sorts of problems, unfortunately. Uh, is this a part of the world that you're interested in looking at right now? Mozambique's a unique situation in a sense, Jack. The first warnings were issued to them in 2016, um, were ignored. They were warned again in 2017, the warnings were ignored. And, and the warnings were not specific, and let me, let me point that out, they were very general warnings. Cabo Delgado is largely, in, in many instances, an ungoverned space. Um, you know, yes, there are one or two big towns, um, several villages, but there's no governance there. And that in itself creates an environment in which anger and frustration from the populace can grow. Um, the warnings issued had to do with the area being used as an infiltration route by jihadis. Okay, and some of them were on their way to South Africa. Um, ultimately, in 2018, it was 2018, I was asked to submit a document um, to the government of Mozambique, which I did. And like two weeks later, the Russians arrived, Wagner, um, into Mozambique. But then I was told my document was shopped around a little bit, and ultimately the contract awarded to a counter-poaching company. Um, you know, it's just like, wow, okay, if they want a counter-poaching company to fight this, I think people are going to suffer casualties. Mm -hmm. um, then some of the guys of step went across, they were recruited by the counter-poaching company, Dyke Advisory Group, um, which I don't have a problem with. If the guys are, are, are recruited to go and do something, go and do it then, if they're not working. Um, what did disappoint me very much is two directors went without telling me. Um, and I just felt I cannot work in a company where the directors betray their own company. And that was why I left Step. Um, insofar as Mozambique is concerned, no, we're not going to go in there. They've got people in there that's not going very well. Um, but, you know, all the advice that was given was ignored. To go in now is going to cost double the effort right. and a hell of a lot more money. Um, not because we want to charge more money to fix the problem, but because the problem has escalated to a point where your means are going to be a hell of a lot more than what were required two years ago. Right. And on that note, Carl asks, what does Eben think about the future of PMCs in Africa? And how will the presence of Chinese and Russian PMCs like Wagner uh, affect the continent? I think it's going to depend on government to government. You know, the South African government was, again, 
sort of browbeaten into formulating a law against PMCs um, from South Africa. Um, I think if PMCs are honest with the governments, if they actually do what they undertake to do, I think they could have a good future. But I do think we are seeing a very unlevel playing field. You know, Russian, Chinese PMCs come in, as do foreign Western PMCs. They don't bid for the contracts. Mm -hmm. They're given the contracts and the money. Um, whereas we have to go to a government and say, you know what, we're going to need X amount of dollars and we need it for the following reasons. When foreign PMCs come in, they claim they're giving all this for free. Well, we all know nothing's for free, um, but the grip just gets tighter and tighter on that government. Um, Wagner came in to Mozambique. Um, I still think they overestimated their own abilities and underestimated the threat. Um, and probably thought it's a walk in the park, and it didn't actually turn out like a walk in the park. Um, the same has happened elsewhere with him. Um, the Chinese PMCs have been a lot more quiet, um, haven't really made themselves known, although they are floating around. Um, but there's a lot of intelligence gathering taking place on the continent. But again, not only from the Chinese, from the West as well. You know, everyone's jockeying for Africa's resources. And unfortunately, Africans are caught in the crossfire. I won't talk Africans, I'm talking broadly speaking. Um, but countries are being caught in this crossfire because these are little proxy wars going on um, and the civilians are the victims of these things. But PMCs, if, if they come in and do what they undertake to do and actually do it, I think they'll have a very good future. But they have to work with governments. They can't, as in the days of executive outcomes when we were established, we're working with the government, but other companies are working with the rebels. I mean, you know, that sort of defies belief. Right. But, and it still unfortunately happens. Do, do you feel as though some of these PMCs from whatever countries that are coming in and offering their services for free, do you feel that basically they're just proxies for those countries, you know, uh, moving in and, and, and gaining more control? Maybe I'm very cynical. Yes, I do believe that. Um, I also believe that a lot of the NGOs running around are, are really intelligence agencies. Yeah. Um, and a lot of NGOs use that position to create bad feelings towards governments. Yeah. You know, look, there's no government in Africa or in the world that doesn't deserve some criticism. Sure. I mean, let's be very honest about that. But you don't come into a country, um, so-called to do your humanitarian work and then try and get the people to turn against the government. I was like, you know, yeah. just hang on guys, what are, what are you trying to do over here? Right. So I think, yes, a lot of, a lot of foreign companies um, are punting foreign agendas. Yeah. Alejandro asks, speaking of Ethiopia building the dam on the Nile, What's the over or under that Egypt might go to war with Ethiopia uh, with the river as a life source for them? I really wouldn't be able to answer that. I don't know. Um, you know, we've never really looked at, at Egypt um, and Ethiopia, especially the dam. I know that 
That dam is probably going to result in some problems, but whether it's going to end up in a conflict, I don't know. I, I can't say. I'm sorry. T-Bar asks, does Eben have any concepts on the ongoing conflict in Libya between terrorism, LNA, GNA, and the international actors? It seems painfully complex, which there are a couple chapters on Libya in Eben's new book here, The War for Africa, um, that we, we're, we're probably not going to have time to really get into in depth. But Eben, please, uh, I, I, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, I got arrested on the airport in Tripoli. I told the Libyans they and their foreign backers deserve one another. And I left and I have no interest in going back there. Um, what we are seeing is a huge fight unfolding for control of resources because of Libya's oil. Um, you know, the sad part about Libya is when I was in Benghazi, um, I met some people who I think in retrospect are... are really bad guys, but they treated me incredibly well. Um, they showed me where the facility was that weapons were being moved by, from, by the US um, into Syria. They told me that they were going to kill your ambassador. We tried to warn your embassy over here and it appeared nothing was done. Um, you know, so Libya to me is, is a area that they must sort themselves out now we were there everything we were told or everything we told them they were told we're lying we we don't know what we're talking about so you know and then of course being arrested was the cherry on top of the cake i was invited there um and by that government and then arrested there and that's when i said you know what you deserve one another and one day when you stand in the bloody smoldering ruins of your country, then call us and then we'll consider coming back. Even I wanted to ask you, you know, you're uh, very adamant that Africans have to resolve African problems, that there can't be foreign interlopers cannot come in and fix these things that are happening, you know, these local problems. Um, but I was wondering if for the sake of, of my own edification and maybe some of the, the Americans who watch this, I would really like to hear your thoughts on how you think American can be more constructive and how it engages with the African continent and, and the very, very many different countries and languages and ethnic groups that in inhabit the continent. Jack, you know, I cannot comment on, on, on how America should um, conduct itself in Africa. Um, I don't think I'm, I'm suitably qualified for that, but I do know that when it comes to security matters, a huge amount of money has been spent and very little results have been achieved. Um, in fact, and as you'll see in that book, I write that members of the US Armed Forces threatened a national park. If they used us, all funding would be stopped to them and, and they would make sure of that. And it's that type of bully attitude that does not go down well. You know, Africans in general, and people will disagree with me, but in general, African people want to be left alone and live their lives, okay? But they are long in memory and short on forgiveness. And things like that stick in their craw, and they're not going to forget about that. Um, and it will come back one day, and it, it might not come back in a nice way. You know, to me... I believe that the U.S. has sent 
private military companies into Africa have just made matters worse. Um, because if I look at how much money has been spent and what the results are, they, there are no results on the table. And I'm not being critical. I'm just being honest about it. Mm -hmm. You know, being critical doesn't mean I'm being negative. So I believe Africans can solve Africa's problems. But we usually, everyone wants to exclude us from the solution. Right. And you know, when I say Africans, I don't only talk of blacks or whites or whatever. To me, it's Africans. I'm a pale face, but I'm an African. Right. Is it, there's uh, so much to get into, but I mean, I, I think for the sake of brevity, um, we'll kind of start to wind it up there. Um, London, thank you so much for chiming in there. Um, I wanted to do the bonus segment. I'll, I'll have to give us a second, but I want to do the bonus segment in a few moments. I'm going to ask Eben or Eben about his uh, meeting with uh, the famous or notorious Mike Hoare of Five Commando fame in the Congo. Um, and then he was present for Mr. Hoare's 100th birthday party. Um, but even before we cut out on the on the main segment here, is there anything you think that uh, we failed to talk about, anything we missed um, that you'd really like to talk about and get out there for people? Jack, it's so difficult because there are so many invisible wars happening. Um, and, you know, people aren't even aware of this. But I would like to say is that it's time someone really had a look at piracy because that's a bloody business model. It can be ended, but it appears the, the, the will to end it is not there. I also believe that some of these conflicts are business models as they allow foreign interests to expand themselves at the expense of the people who live in those areas. Um, and again, I'm not being critical, but allow me to ask you this. Why the sudden interest in Niger? Is it because of the Taudini Basin? That suddenly the war on terror has transitioned from the Middle East into Niger? Mm -hmm. well, how did that happen? Because that was bloody fast. Um, so, you know, I'm very cynical about a lot of things. And again, I'm not anti-West or anti-East. I'm pro-Africa. Right. If people want to make a difference in Africa, a positive difference, I'm all for it. And I don't care who they are. But if they want to come in, exploit, and create collateral damage, I'm not for that. Where do you think uh, it has to start? Do you, does, it, does it start with a, an awareness amongst the people? Do the politicians have to? I mean, is it a result of corruption in the government? Uh, that, that allows these foreign pro these foreign powers to get so involved sometimes to the I mean often to the detriment of the to the country and to the continent how do you how do you stop that influence or where does that begin in your opinion you know, Dave, I think part of the problem is that many um, countries really don't have um, structured, coherent national strategy. Uh -huh. um, and I think it all starts rippling down from that. And then, of course, some um, countries utilize the intelligence services to gather intelligence on the opposition mm -hmm. and not really fulfill their mandate, which is to provide early warning, actionable intelligence and predicted intelligence. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Many governments were advised there are certain units they don't need. Um, 
You know, I take South Africa as a very good example. When in 1994, after the elections, foreign advisors rushed in and advised the government, you don't need these units, you don't need those units, they are danger. And so military units that are, are effective in combat mm -hmm. become politically expedient. Right. And then when the problem starts, everyone's caught napping because there's been no intelligence. The units that could have done the job no longer exist. Right. Um, and it has a ripple effect because the populace lose confidence in the armed forces. The armed forces say, well, we can't act because we don't have intelligence and we've been, you know, our teeth have been removed. So it's, there's a whole ripple effect. But it, to me, it goes back to the national strategy. We had a couple people chime in. I'll try to get through this real quick. Uh, with foreign nations buying up African farmland and other resources, how can it be ensured that the resources of Africa ultimately benefit Africa? I've always said that what we see unfolding, um, Africans need to take responsibility and be held accountable for these types of things. Uh -huh. um, you know, there are countries to the north of South Africa where the east virtually own the countries, where they own the harbors and, and the airports. Um, and these are strategic assets that, that governments should own. Um, where is it going to end? I don't know. Um, how are you going to control that? Again, I don't know, because I do know that there have been NGOs involved in resource extraction quietly and resource smuggling. Um, you know, and these are people that, that come and put on the green hat and say, yeah, we're here to save Africa. They, they're there to save their bank accounts. That's what they're there for. Right, right. Ian is asking a tongue-in-cheek joke here, but maybe you actually know the answer from some of your work. Uh, what does Eben think a giraffe sells for on the open market in the U.S., and is he surprised with the value? I wouldn't know what a giraffe sells for. <laughs> <laughs> Alejandro says, uh, thank you, Mr. Barlow, for your candor and openness. You're a scholar and a gentleman and a soldier, soldier. I raise my glass to you. Cheers. That's very kind. Thank you. And Cheers, Alex asks, can you please speak on the special relationship South Africa has with Israel? Also, is executive outcomes looking for interns and how can we find EO online? Okay. Um Again, I cannot speak on the relationship between South Africa and Israel because I'm not a politician. I'm not privy to what happens behind closed doors. I hear the rhetoric, um, but that's about it. And we're not looking for interns anywhere. I have very good men from across Africa, but thank you very much for your offer. Uh, and last one, uh, just a B. Piazzi, he says, like the wings on your hat, fellow paratrooper. Um, so, Eben, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, please stay with us. I'm going to do the bonus segment in one sec. Um, for everyone watching, thank you so much for joining us live tonight. Um, thanks for watching this afterwards, wherever you caught us on, on YouTube or on a podcast or whatever. Um, our next episode next Friday is going to be with Clay Huttmacher, who was the commander of 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. He was also a helicopter pilot himself. Um, so we'll be talking to him next week. And everybody, please make sure you uh, like, share, and subscribe to the video or the channel or the podcast or whatever it is. Um, 
help the channel grow. And there's a link down in the description to our Patreon page if you're interested in supporting it. Yeah, uh, we missed one, just uh, London Naji, I think, uh, Nagai or Naji. Yeah, I brought it up. Oh, did you say thank you? Um, even where can uh, we buy your new book? Because the first two are on Amazon, uh, but this one is not on Amazon US yet, correct? Yeah, it, it, it was only released on the 20th, I think, of November. Okay. Or the 13th, 13th of November. It was Friday the 13th. I remember that. <laughs> um, it's, it's available at the moment only through a company known as War Books, um, Bush War Books, um, but their web address is www.warbooks.com. That's Whiskey Alpha Romeo Bravo Oscar Oscar Kilo Sierra dot co dot za. We'll, we'll put a link down in the description to make it easy for people to find it. Um, Thanks, Jack. The, the link is in, in, in the inside cover of the book, if I recall correctly. Yep. Yep. So that's awesome. Again, Eben, thank you so much. And uh, we'll do the bonus segment in two seconds. And thank you again, everyone who joined us. We'll see you next Friday. Well, let me see if I can paste this. I can't paste it. All right. Okay, we're out. Okay, Evan, um, do you need to take a two, uh, a little... Uh... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.